a true pleasure to welcome Eliza Griswold to Harrisburg this evening. She is a Guggenheim Fellow, the author of a collection of poems, Wide Awake Field, and a nonfiction book, The Tenth Parallel, Dispatches from the Fault Line Between Christianity and Islam, which was a New York Times bestseller. She is currently a staff writer for The New Yorker, where you can find her writing on Pennsylvania politics and other various happenings around the world. And of course, we are here today because of her brand new book, drawing upon seven years of immersive reporting, amity and prosperity, one family and the fracturing of America. In the book, Griswold chronicles one woman's transformation from a struggling single parent to an unlikely activist. Uh, and that's in a small town in Western Pennsylvania. Stacy Haney's story is one that deserves to be told in full with the hard-won facts of an investigative journalist and the lyricism of a storyteller, Griswold is certainly up to the task. Amity and Prosperity is the must-read book of the year on fracking in Pennsylvania, and we couldn't be more excited to welcome her to Harrisburg. So without further ado, let's give a warm Harrisburg welcome to Eliza Griswold. I'm terrified if I don't get out of here soon. This is the book pile I made just by <laughs> being introduced. <laughs> What a remarkable place. I mean, what an honor to be here with you guys tonight. So um, so thank you for coming. And yeah, I am, it's really, I found my favorite events around this book are talking to people inside of Pennsylvania um, and talking a little bit about the history that undergirds this book, which is kind of about fracking, but really not at all. <laughs> it's really about um, how it is that rural Americans have long paid the energy appetites of urban Americans, and how do we restore that understanding um, when we're looking at what this history of disenfranchisement among our rural, rural brothers and sisters really, what is the history there? What's it about? Um, and certainly it has to do with more than a century here in Pennsylvania of coal mining oil fields. <laughs> of course, oil was discovered here in Pennsylvania in 1851, not far from where I spent seven years reporting this book, Amity and Prosperity. So I'm going to give you guys a little bit of a history and a little bit of a sense of what the book is about. And then I'm going to read to you the first couple of pages, because how the book reads and the ideas that engendered it are sound pretty different. So this book, you know, I rep started reporting this in 2011, in the spring of 2011, when I went to the Morgantown, West Virginia airport uh, with a biologist from the Army Corps of Engineers, I was looking at crumbling infrastructure. I was trying to tell the story of collective poverty in America. Uh, my background as a reporter is mostly in Africa and Asia until I started writing this book. Uh, you know, Iraq, Afghanistan, mostly conflict correspondence. When I was in Nigeria, some years ago, when a bridge collapsed in the north, um, as bridges do collapse, and I had to get to a little town across a river, and I was riding, as you do, on an empty oil barrel if you're a reporter and you gotta get across that river. And it was a couple of weeks after I-35W had collapsed in Minneapolis, and 13 people had died. And there was something about that moment on the river where I thought, you know, it's really time to return to the United States to look at the problems facing Americans. Because so often, we look at problems elsewhere. Uh, but so many of the problems we cast elsewhere happen here in the US too. And one of those problems is something we call the resource curse. 
Since the 90s, uh, economists have defined this question. Sometimes it's called the paradox of plenty. And the paradox being, why is it that people who live on land that tends to be richest in natural resources are among the poorest on Earth? We look at this in Nigeria. We look at this in Latin America, Venezuela, certainly oil-rich states. But the truth is this applies in the United States, too, and nowhere more so than Appalachia. And of course, Appalachia begins not far from here, not so far to the west. Um, but really, where I spent the last seven years in two towns, which are called Amity and Prosperity. So as I said, in the my reporting began in West Virginia. When I went to this airport in March of 2011, and I went because I wanted to learn. I was with a biologist who was asking questions about what the oil and gas boom meant to Pennsylvania, and what did it mean to people who were living on top of these massive deposits of natural gas? And she wanted to learn firsthand what people had to say about that, and I went along, and I was sitting waiting for the talk to begin, and a few rows ahead of me there was a girl who I took to about be about maybe 11 years old. She was wearing pajamas. She was complaining to her mother that she was hungry. She hadn't eaten breakfast. Her mother was scolding her, you know, that she should have gotten up earlier, and you know, I, as a reporter, you never know when you're going to eat next, so I carry often, like, gross natural bars of some kind, you know? So I so I reach forward with my earnest organic something, and the 11-year-old girl was like, ugh, and rejected <laughs> it. <laughs> so, um, and then her mom got up and started to talk, and her mom is a single mother of two. She's a nurse. Uh, she was incredibly nervous to talk. Um, and she started telling the story of the fact that her kids and she had uh, benzene and toluene in their bodies. And uh, her son had recently been diagnosed with arsenic poisoning. And she didn't really know what was going on with them, uh, but she knew she had discovered about a quarter of a mile up a hill behind a fence next to her house, there was an, a, a waste pond that was 80 times the size of her farmhouse. She didn't know the size back then, that's what we've since learned. And that's all she knew. She had gone to the oil and gas company that was developing the land, and she had told them that um, she was uh, she thought maybe something was wrong with the water. Her kids were sick. She'd given the, the her medical tests over, and the company had done what they s they did pretty widely back then, which is start supplying drinking water. Um, and one of the reasons she was so afraid to talk that day at the airport is she was afraid that the company would punish her by taking the water away. And if they did that, she could never afford that water for herself and for their farm animals. Um, and she was going to have to leave their house, which of course ended up happening anyway. Um, over the course of the reporting, as I got to know her, she ended up abandoning a farmhouse that had been her in her family for more than a century. So. She became, as I watched, I mean, this is a woman, I went up to her, you know, at, at the end of the meeting and asked if I could come see her. And she, like many people from, from southwestern Pennsylvania, um, she really didn't like reporters. She didn't like outsiders. She did not want to be associated. She didn't want to be the spokesperson for anybody. Um, and she was reluctant. She was actually not reluctant with me because I didn't have to write anything the next day. I was just, I said, look, can I come out and meet you? If you don't want to, I won't write a word about anything. We can just talk. And so she said that was okay. Um, and what I watched happen to her over the years is she went from being extraordinarily reticent to really 
an outspoken activist on health concerns related to oil and gas, related to industry. Um, she became, and her neighbors became, really citizen heroes in, in Trump's America. But when I started reporting this, Trump wasn't even a figment of our political imagination. Um, and that gave me the, the grounding that when, you know, when Trump did become a, a force to be reckoned with, I could look, I knew, first of all, people, you know, 60% of the county, Washington County, mm -hmm. uh, where Stacey and her family lived, voted for Trump, and most of her neighbors and most of her family did. And so I had spent what ended up being seven years really with these people who could explain to me some of the longer-term disenfranchisement that led to their rage. And a lot of it revolved around energy. A lot of it revolved around this idea that for centuries we have supplied you um, what you need to flick on your lights and you haven't given us a thought. And you leave behind, energy leaves behind an incredibly dirty environment, uh, but it also leaves behind economic and social costs. It leaves behind suddenly bankrupt coal concerns that leave a town jobless. Um, and, it, it, and industry leaves behind a pattern of opioid addiction because so many of the people who live in this area are heavy laborers. They, they have worked in coal, they, they work in heavy industry. And the pattern is quite often injury, legitimate use of painkillers. Six months in, your job's gonna flag that you cannot get more legal painkillers and you start buying them illegally. So these are some of the social, the human costs of American energy mm -hmm. that I certainly had never reckoned with. Um, and I started to chronicle them. And, that, and that's really what I've been doing for seven years. But on top of that, on top of that, there's this curious history in, in Pennsylvania. Um, I am the great-great-great-granddaughter of General George Gordon Meade who led the Union Army at Gettysburg. Mm -hmm. And so my, I'd never been to Gettysburg before I started reporting this book. My family's all from Philadelphia, good old Quakers. We've been on the same land since before the Revolutionary War. Uh, George Washington billeted his troops on the land in a place called Camp Wood. So my understanding of Pennsylvania history is rooted in this revolutionary and civil, really east eastern part of the state identity. And one of the first times I showed up in Amity, I went to see a farmer who sadly has since died. and. He said, where are you from? And I knew that New York City was probably not a great answer to that. <laughs> but I did assume as a fellow Pennsylvanian, daughter of the Commonwealth, Philadelphia would be better. No, right? So I said, I'm, I live in New York City, but I'm from Philadelphia. And he just looked me dead in the eye and said, that's two strikes against you. <laughs> and so what I came to learn was this deeper history of East-West divide that stretches back, of course, since before the Revolutionary War, since the Quaker elite sent Western settlers, mostly Scots-Irish, out to the Allegheny Mountains to form a buffer where those Scots-Irish were not allowed to legally hold the leases to land. They could squat on land, though, and they carved their initials in trees to make tomahawk rights, na fighting with Native Americans, while the East Coast, the Quaker elite, looked down on that process. You know, oh, those bloody rabble out there fighting Native Americans, and of course the Western settlers thinking, you are hypocrites, you Quaker elite back in Philadelphia. We are fighting on your behalf and you are disowning us because we are inconvenient. Um, then what we had happen with the Revolutionary War is many of those settlers went to fight as revolutionary soldiers while they were gone from places like Amity and, and Prosperity in Washington County. The Native Americans destroyed their homesteads in retribution. These settlers returned after the Revolutionary War 
to nothing, to decimation. They were never paid their, s their salaries as revolutionary soldiers. They were in debt. They were angry at the nascent federal government. And then we have, enter the scene, somebody whose who's portrait hangs upside down on Main Street in Washington, Pennsylvania. Um, and that person is, of course, that villain, Alexander Hamilton. <laughs> so <coughs> you have in a whiskey distillery on Main Street in Washington, Pennsylvania, you have Hamilton hanging upside down. Why? Because he engineered attacks on their most viable economic concern, which was whiskey. And then you have from you know 1791 onward the first successful uprising against that federal government. And then that attitude that that the federal government is out to screw us um, continues to this day in places like Washington, Pennsylvania. Um, so coming to understand that history, how that romantic history informs the political history today was very much part of the journey and is part of the book as well. So I think with that, I'm going to read you just the first couple of pages of the book. Um, it's going to bring up a lot of questions. Uh, it, I really, we can talk about method, which it took a long time to put this together. Um, I guess what I would say, it's important to understand that in the book, there are heroes and villains, as in any book. The really, the, the, the locus of disappointment for the people who I write about is the government. Yes, the corporation did what it did, as corporations do. Um, but the state and federal government um, and regulatory bodies in Pennsylvania, especially um, the state bodies, the Department of Environmental Protection, failed these people woefully. And the regulations weren't in place where they were, they failed. This is part of a longer and other history of public poverty that I think we really have to understand in America that, you know, one of the people in the book watched as a DEP employee asked the, the gas company employee at the site, they were on the site looking into possible problems, asked if there was a job in the, in the, in the company. And, and, and can one fault the DEP employee because they are so woefully underfunded? Um, in order to regulate, they rely on information. The industry supplies the information they want to do. There's no objective getting of information. Um, so what I found time and time again was just this woeful inadequacy. And it wasn't, you know, many of the people in the book thought, you know, there was tons of conspiracy theory. These people are out to get us. And much more often, it was just negligence, human error, and this larger system of public poverty, which meant that those companies could come in, privatize profit, trade off costs in the, f in the form of impacting human health, destroying roads, easy practical things and some harder to understand things, and leave those social, I called it the socialization of cost. Privatize the profit, socialize the cost. Um, these patterns go far beyond fracking. Um, they are entrenched in Pennsylvania as elsewhere over centuries. And that is really what this book is about. But it begins and ends at the Washington County Fair. Has anyone here been to the Washington County Fair? Okay, I would suggest it's not so far away. I myself have many times taken the train to Harrisburg to the farm show, and someone's picked me up at the farm show and taken me to the Washington County Fair. It is totally a remarkable place, and it's worth going. So, um, okay, so I'm going to read to you what the Washington County Fair is like, because it, it begins at the fair. This is where Stacy Haney, the nurse who I met at the Morgantown Airport, um, 
and her neighbor, who you'll meet as I read, Beth Voiles, started putting together this, this pattern of sickness. And the sickness really began with the animals. And it was through the death of their, their farm animals and their pets that they started to understand what might be causing them to feel so ill as well. So with that, I'm just going to read these first couple of pages and then open it up to any questions you guys might have. Most years at the Washington County Fair, Stacy Haney set up an animal salon outside her blue and white coachman trailer. She and her younger sister Shelly would plug a blow dryer into a generator and style their children's goats in preparation for the 4-H competition. This year, the salon seemed too much effort, so Stacy readied the, readied the animals at home. She'd spent the past two days up to her armpits in a blue kiddie pool of freezing water and mane and tail soap, washing, clipping, and brushing two goats, two pigs, and four rabbits. Then that August morning, she'd hauled them 10 miles to the fairgrounds. After registering the rabbits, she proceeded to Callie's lemonade stand with her 11-year-old daughter, Paige. 30 miles southwest of Pittsburgh, the Washington County Fairground was composed of two worlds. The lower realm contained the Tilt-A-Whirl, operated by strangers, roustabouts who arrived from elsewhere. Stacy's son, Harley, who just turned 14, called it Carney Land. The upper belonged to 4-H and agriculture types, many of whom, including Stacy's family, considered themselves hoopies, an insider's name for the hilljacks, or hillbillies, who live in the borderlands of Pennsylvania, Ohio, and West Virginia, where Appalachia begins. These two worlds met midway up the ridge at Cowley's, where Stacy and Paige were waiting for lemonade when they spied two familiar figures trundling downhill from the horse barn the square woman with frosted hair, and the spare man with a snowy mane and a limp were Beth and John Voiles. They lived next door at Just a Breeze, a 15-acre farm where they trained horses and bred high-end dogs. The two families shared a fence and a love of animals. Beth treated her boxers like children. She cooked them angel hair pasta, zucchini and meatball sandwiches, and dressed them in tiny leather jackets, flight goggles, and scarves for professional photographs. She framed the photos and hung them around the ranch house where she'd lived with John for the past 28 years. Say what one might about the Voiles, over the past year and a half, they'd proven excellent neighbors, while Stacy, 40, juggled full-time shifts as a nurse in the recovery unit of the Washington Hospital and finalized her divorce. The Voiles kept a quiet eye on her place. Their daughter, Ashley, often brought her new boxer puppy, Cummins, down to distract Harley when he was sick at home. At 22, Ashley still lived at home and raced horses professionally. She'd also been teaching Stacy's daughter Paige to ride since Paige was two. As Beth and John approached, Stacy could see that mascara was running down Beth's ruddy face. Stacy guessed it was the muggy heat. The air at the fair was redolent with popcorn and musk, which mingled with the scent of baby shampoo from the ma mane and tail lingering on Stacy's arms. A rash blazed on Stacy's left where it had been erupting on and off for months. Although she was a nurse, she couldn't determine its cause. She studied the welts, and when she looked up, Beth was in front of her, her face smeared with tears. Cummins is dead, Beth said, poisoned. Stacy's head swam. In her mind, she scanned the farmhouses and trailers that wended their way from the top of the valley where she and Beth lived, down McAdams Road to the base of the hollow called the Bottoms. She knew nearly everyone. Many families were bound by generations of helping one another farm and more recently survived the economic collapse of the past several decades. No one would poison a puppy, she told Beth gently. Beth thought otherwise. 
The vet had told her that Cummins' insides had frozen up, she said, crystallized as if he'd drunk antifreeze. The, Beth couldn't rule out cancer. the vet couldn't rule out cancer either, but Beth suspected foul play. She also thought she knew where the poison had come from. She'd seen the dog drinking from a puddle of water left on the roadside after a truck came through to spray down dust earlier that summer. Wondering what the liquid was, she'd tried to follow with a glass mason jar, but the driver stopped, screeching his air brake on the steep dirt hill. He yelled at her to back away. Later, Beth and Stacy would mark this conversation about Cummins' death as the beginning of solving a mystery. But at the time, Stacy was sweaty and distracted. Paige stood by, crunching the sugar at the bottom of her lemonade cup. Stacy hugged Beth and watched her continue down the hill with John toward the field of neon. She wanted to get back to the trailer to check on Harley. She dreaded telling him the news. Harley loved Cummins, and he was so sick. Over the past year and a half, his stomach had churned with an undiagnosed illness. He'd missed most of seventh grade, sitting at home in a recliner, watching his dog Hunter play with Cummins on the living room floor. Harley had gone from being a shy and handsome basketball player who shambled easily through life to a listless stick figure. At 6'1", he was 127 pounds. A few days earlier, when Harley weighed his goat boots for competition at the fair, she'd weighed nearly the same as her master. Stacy hoped that this year's 4-H competition would lift his spirits. She and Harley had ambitions for Boots. Instead of being skittish, as most goats are, Boots was friendly. Harley spent every day with her since he was home, which may have been why the brown and white boar goat enjoyed people. When Harley went up to the Haney's ramshackle barn to feed her, Boots slung her hooves over the wooden pen to lick his face. I'm going to stop reading there. <laughs> so that's, that's the beginning of the story um, that takes place over the next eight years, because that's 2010, um, and continues to this day, really continues to this day, um, about how this family represents those who have paid America's energy costs um, without even knowing, without even choosing to do. So thank you very much for listening, and I'd love to answer some questions. We're going to open it up to questions. Um, so if you have a question, just raise your hand and I'll come to you with the mic. There's a question in the back. Uh, hi, Liza. I had the uh, pleasure of reviewing your book. Oh, hey. Hi. Mm -hmm. And uh, I, I want to urge everyone to buy it because it's not just a, a thoroughly reported book, uh, <laughs> but uh, I think you brought to bear your, your skills as a poet. Uh, it's beautifully written. In a lot of ways, it reminded me of Jennifer Haig's novel, Heat and Light. Yeah. Thank you. Only this is real. Yeah. Um, so my question is, um, could you talk a little bit about the, the litigation that the Smiths filed and how they invoked the uh, Pennsylvania Environmental Rights Amendment? Excellent. That's an excellent question. So probably the most hopeful note, in, and some of you guys may remember this case. Um, so a few years back, so as a result of what the Smiths learned from, from working so closely with Stacy and their understanding that regulation wasn't adequate and the actual physical risks associated with not just fracking. I mean, I think what happens is we have this hot button word, fracking, and depending on where you sit on what side of the aisle, th it becomes a political football. But a lot of the problems that, that really sicken these people have to do with building any industrial site where you have 200 diesel trucks passing by 35 feet from their house, right? So 
you begin with those very practical concerns. So what the Smiths, and the, and the Smiths cataloged all of this, because that's really when the young boy in this book, Harley, starts having health problems, and, and they think it was related to particulate matter, diesel particulate matter in his, in his lungs. So they decide, so you guys may remember um, Governor Corbett proposed these changes to the Oil and Gas Act in 2013, and among those changes was something that critics call the physician gag rule, where they wanted to put in place a measure that physicians, if you thought your, your client, your patient was sick with, with chemicals related to oil and gas, you could find out to some degree what those chemicals were. A lot of them are proprietary, so you wouldn't find out all of them, but you'd find out some of them, but you could never tell your patient or another doctor, right? So doctors, just screamed over this one. This is, uh, this is not the Hippocratic Oath. There were other measures that were also extremely concerning. But how were the Smiths and other lawyers going to fight back? They used the Pennsylvania Constitution. And one of the most important aspects of the Constitution they used is this obscure amendment um, that dates back to 1972 called the Environmental Amendment. And it guarantees Pennsylvania's citizens the rights to clean air and pure water. And they took this all the way up to the Pennsylvania Supreme Court. At the time, the Chief Justice was Ron Castile, a, a Vietnam combat vet and a conservative Republican, um, who found in favor of the Smiths. He actually quoted Stacy in his decision, and he gave teeth to this for the first time in history, saying, indeed, Pennsylvania citizens had the right to clean air and pure water, um, and industry or the government itself didn't have the right to violate them. So that was incredibly exciting and probably the most hopeful part of reporting this book. Stacy, the mom of two, after having her kids, she quotes that decision as the most important thing she's ever done in her life because she really sees her life as an example for others. She, they lost everything. They, were, they continue to be hundreds of thousands of dollars into, in debt even after they've settled. Um, they lost their farmhouse, they lost their animals, um, they lost an entire way of life, which they're still trying to reclaim. So she is always looking, she's an incredibly spiritual person and she's, she really is so heroic and she's always looking to make meaning out of what she's suffered. And that case that you bring up, that moment in front, the, in front of the Supreme Court, she really hangs onto that tightly, especially these days. So thanks for asking and thank you for reviewing it. Question in the back. I may be somewhat naive, but I know that in other states, I think it's Ohio, they have a much greater severance tax. Yeah. I know that other states like Maryland and New York, they have um, limitations or a prohibition against fracking. So yeah. what is it about Pennsylvania's culture that allows us to be taken advantage of? Such a wonderful question. It's such, I, you know, and I don't know that it has one answer, and I can respond to it in the limited way that I can from direct reporting, and I'm sure there are political analysts here in the state who could, who could answer that in, in profound and different ways. Um, you know, Pennsylvania has such a long history with, first of all, timber. I mean, timber was, right, the, the first major industry. Um, but since that, the coal companies, you know, and coal so significantly eroded um, many of the strictures that the people became numb to. The King Cole rode roughshod over regulation. And I think to some degree what happened is that oil and gas benefited from those same, uh, those same kind of legal runarounds. I mean, 
not alongside, which is also a hugely interesting history that runs through this book, is alongside of this long history with industry, Pennsylvania has this long history with conservatism. Not, not political conservatism, but the conservation ethic, right? I mean, you, some of my favorite characters and the most vocal opponents, the most effective opponents to fracking and the oil and gas industry in southwestern Pennsylvania are former coal miners, they're hunters, they're you know, fishermen, and they believe strongly in the wise use of resources for future generations. Mm -hmm. and, and they're also, they've seen what industry does because they've watched coal for a very long time. So it's sad for Pennsylvania. Um, it's ex like Tony Ingrafia, who is, is an expert on oil and gas, I was at a lecture some years ago in Pittsburgh and a, and a, a woman who had a gas well next to her farm went up to him afterwards and she said, what can we do for Pennsylvania? And he said, it's just too late. There's nothing to do, right? And that is just too sad. I mean, I think what we're seeing now, Pennsylvania, you know, I'm biased because I report here, but it is the most fascinating place because so many cultures and points of view come, come to bear here. And so what can we do? We can ask our prospective elected officials exactly where they sit on a severance tax, you know, and in, in s because I've seen this in, in most local elections, like House representative races, you know, that, that people really, you, you can actually ask your representative and they're gonna know because there is leasing going on of public land right nearby. I mean, one, this is not a Republican or a Democrat issue, you know. Um, we look at the, what happened with the budget shortfall in Pennsylvania some years ago right, as we saw the plugging of the budget by a Democratic governor by leasing hundreds of thousands of, of public land to oil and gas, right? And that industry, that money from industry helped fill this budget shortfall. A and so looking into where we, where we, where do we turn the other way and why do we do it? How do we address this public poverty and how do we hold our representatives accountable so that they can help hold these public systems more accountable? Any other questions? Yes. Well, just as a follow-up to what you were yeah. saying, I think it benefits the small percentage of companies or people in our country that have all the power and money yeah. to keep people divided. Yes. Um, and there are a lot of different kinds of divisions that are you know, really being looked at, and we have a young generation that is really motivated like a lot of previous generations, to try to make things better and yeah. try to address these issues, I think there's a lot of overlap. Yes. Um, do you have some, I want to say, insight or <laughs> a hopeful message as far as how to affect change on such a big scale of, l just to break it down, like mm -hmm. the urban, understanding how much we have in common with people who are rural? <coughs> because the more we think we don't, the more the power stays right where it is. This entire project is designed to do that. You know, I go not only to, you know, the wealthiest zip codes in New York City with this book, but I go to Washington, Pennsylvania. And one of the reasons that that message of rural Americans paying for all urban's American, urban Americans' mm -hmm. energy is because in my experience of it, no matter where on the political spectrum rural Americans fit, they can get behind that reality. And one of the things that I've seen since the election, you know, writing as I do for, you know, 
really elite publications, right? P publications read by New Yorkers, and you know, is the how little we understand of the voices from rural America. And what my job is, is to go and be a translator, right? My job is to go and listen. The other night in Washington, you know, just to be really honest, I was terrified. Like, driving out from Washington, D.C. to Washington, Pennsylvania, I was terrified that the gas company was going to show up and heckle me, and they do that sometimes. And not that I actually, to be very clear, I've never heard of that particular company doing that, but the industry will do that. Um, and, you know, but that, I had to go. And there we were in this little community center in Washington, Pennsylvania, and what I just did with you guys, I did with them, same talk, um, except that when the microphone started going around, people just started telling their stories. And a lot of them were in the book, and people I hadn't met. Um, so, hi, I did X, Y, and Z, and Stacy couldn't be there because she was not able to be there, and I'll leave it at that. But her sister Shelley stood up and just said, people live this story not only in America, they live it all around the world. The difference is we happen to have a journalist for the past eight years, right? So that's my job. What you're asking is what is the unifying message? My job is to find that message and translate between the two. Hopefully other journalists will do the same, and there's plenty of work to be done in rural America if people want to go out. We're not so far here. If <laughs> people want to go out and have those firsthand experiences themselves. So, yeah. We've got a question up on the balcony first, right up here. Okay. Uh, thanks for coming by. Yeah. Uh, your recounting of the differences between the, um, the Quaker elite in Philadelphia and the uh, Appalachian folks in the West it reminds me of a book I read. Um, you ever heard of Colin Woodward, uh, American Masons? No. Because it, it sounds very much like uh, that. It basically, it's the idea is that the United States is can't uh, composed of different sort of masons, so mm -hmm, to speak. Mm -hmm. Like one from Yankeedom, one from the Deep South, one from Appalachia, one from essentially New Netherlands, which is New York. Mm -hmm. And... I was wondering if you knew anything about that and how that might play into uh, the politics of, uh, of um, the oil and gas industry in this state. So there, there are a couple of fantastic books uh, that, that trace the history that I just gave you in a couple of minutes in, you know, 500 pages. And they are chronicled in the back of the book, which has a reading guide. Um, one is A Peaceable Kingdom Lost about William Penn and William Penn's ideas that were Quaker ideas about how land had to be purchased as opposed to taken from Native Americans. That was a nice idea, but if Native Americans didn't understand an individual land ownership in the same way, these treaties really didn't mean what we thought that they meant. Um, but So I would suggest the Paxton Boys, do you know that? They're either A Peaceable Kingdom Lost or um, the Paxton Boys are both two excellent histories. The Paxton Boys, does anybody know who they were? I certainly didn't. They uh, were, after the Revolutionary War, the, the pissed off revolutionary soldiers I described to you led a series of horrific massacres of Native peoples as retribution because, of course, during the Revolutionary War, um, Native Americans sided with both the British 
and the colonialists because the British guaranteed, listen, we're going to help get these colonialists out of your land. So after the Revolutionary War ended, and of course the colonial forces won, um, a lot of those former soldiers just massacred, scalped women and children, um, and then they rode east to Philadelphia to demand from that Quaker elite rights to land ownership. Um, and actually it was Ben Franklin and some others who met them and stopped them and turned them around. It's not only the, that, that what's written into that history um, and not too much under the surface, surface is a deep history of racism around the, the hatred of native peoples. Um, and I don't know if anybody's had the chance yet to go to the Museum of the American Revolution in Philadelphia. It's amazing. And, you know, I took my five-year-old. He thought all the, like, mannequins were actually real people just staying very still, you know. <laughs> <laughs> but part of the history that, that that museum restores is how the debates between native peoples went on about who should, who should we side with and why. There's an amazing quote that I use in the book, but I, I found in the museum um, that said, it's a native chief who says, you know, if anyone knew what these settlers were doing to our women and children, we would not be called the savages. So it's a long, fascinating history, and there's a lot to be read into it and to be restored to our common understanding of, of how we came to be where we are today. We have time for just one more question. Well, we'll do two. We'll yeah. do two. <laughs> I was just wondering if you've been to Susquehanna County and followed the Marcellus Shale issues with the oil, you know, fracking up there, and the whole question of eminent domain. Yeah. How much money people have made? I mean, it, this isn't, quote unquote, always poor farmers. Yeah. Some people sold out because they wanted, and not only just one payment, this is almost for a lifetime, if Cabot and these other companies will keep their word and their contracts. Yeah. And then in Lancaster County, what we've had on yeah. all the way down yeah. from up there yeah. is not a, a production for us. Right. It's to be shipped it's out. It's the pipeline. Yeah. And so the companies are really raping Pennsylvania. Yeah. It's not a matter of, it is a matter of buying their way and getting the state mm -hmm. and other states to permit them to take by force, yes. really, because that's what eminent domain does. Yeah. I mean, does that, I haven't read your book, I'm dying to read yeah, it now, yeah. but um, does that play a part in what you're, you're working on now, say? Yeah, I mean, I am covering now, um, and if anybody w has an idea afterwards, I'm trying to cover some of the East Coast pipeline fights, because we know of Dakota Access, but we don't know, you know, in the East Coast, you've got nuns and, you know, Second Amendment folks, you know, g with well armed saying, Pipeliner, get off my land, right? So what the book does trace is, is the two waves of development. I mean, you know, I was in Washington County last night and the night before in the crappy little motel, you know, where I stay. Once again, every room was full, every parking spot was a white pickup truck because with this idea of Appalachia becoming a petrochemical alley, um, the ramping up is happening, right? Because to some degree, what has limited the growth of the oil and gas industry in, in Pennsylvania is the fact that there was nowhere to send this abundant gas, right? It was like a traffic jam. Like, you can only send it to nearby East Coast markets to be used as electricity as opposed to 
other shales, right? You're, this is all Marcellus. The book's all Marcellus and Utica. I mean, it's, it traces the development of these shales. But um, the far Barnett, right? We're looking at far more um, shales that come with a lot more money. Why? Because you can get it out to petrochemical companies, and that development with two cracker and ethane plants already in in not so far, right? Outside of Pittsburgh has already happened. So. All of that is in the book, as is, and I will just say, I would be remiss if I had shown up in that little town and talked only to people who opposed industry. You know, for seven years, I went and talked to farmers who had made hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars off of industry. They were neighbors with Stacey Haney. Um, and, and, you know, they told me extraordinarily touching stories of what that money had allowed them to do. Re-roof barns, stay on land that they would have had to leave, build a, a bathroom for a, an aging mother. These guys did not buy Mercedes. <laughs> Their tractors probably cost more than Mercedes. So anyway, if I really insisted upon making sure that the, this book was representative and fair because I think we've had too much reporting from either side that just becomes too easy to dismiss. The people who are opposed to eminent domain, uh, who are resisting, yeah, yeah, they don't have any money yet, and they won't for years, even right. though they're ripping up their land right. and right. ruining the water. And uh, I have your next story for you. Fantastic. Maybe you will come to me after. We don't have to tell everybody what it is. Okay. <laughs> but everybody needs to know about Ellen and Elise Gerhardt in okay. Huntington County. Okay. I'm gonna be, okay, you can stop. <coughs> they are being harassed something terrible. They are going through their land and ruining their pond yeah. and their stream. Yeah. And they are being harassed by the state police <coughs> and by the county judges. They tr are trying to have Ellen committed because mm. she's defending her property. They, those people really need to be helped. Okay. Well, I would love their information, and I will give them a call tomorrow if you supply it. Great. Okay. I can't guarantee that I will cover it as a story, but I will call them, and I will talk to them thoroughly. Okay? Okay. Can we give it a round of applause for Eliza? <laughs> Thanks so much Thank for you. Eliza for coming. Thanks to everyone uh, for coming out tonight.